0: People are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. This is the first thing I hear when I come back to the city. Blair picks me up from LAX and mutters this under her breath as her car drives up the on ramp. She says, People are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. Though that sentence shouldn't bother me, it stays in my mind for an uncomfortably long time. Nothing else seems to matter. Not the fact that I'm 18 and it's December the ride on the plane had been rough, and the couple from Santa Barbara, who were sitting across from me in first class, had gotten pretty drunk. Not the mud that had splattered the legs of my jeans, which felt kind of cold and loose, earlier that day at an airport in New Hampshire. Not the stain on the arm of the wrinkled, damp shirt I wear, a shirt which had looked fresh and clean this morning. Not the tear on the neck of my grey argyle vest, which seems vaguely more eastern than before especially next to Blair's clean tight jeans and her pale blue t-shirt. All of this seems irrelevant next to that one sentence. It seems easier to hear that people are afraid to merge rather than I'm pretty sure Muriel is anorexic or the singer on the radio crying out about magnetic waves. Nothing else seems to matter to me but those 10 words. Not the warm winds which seem to propel the car down the empty asphalt freeway or the faded smell of marijuana, which still faintly permeates Blair's car. All it comes down to is that I'm a boy coming home for a month and meeting someone I haven't seen for four months and people are afraid to merge. Brett Easton Ellis, Lesson Than Zero. Typewriter, a podcast about writing and the writing life. I'm Paul, and today's episode is actually a crossover from my other podcast, Bookish, which is a literary podcast. It's one I did a few months back that I think fits well on Angry Typewriter, because it not only talks about writers and a little bit of their writing life, particularly the literary brat pack of the 1980s. It also serves as an introduction to a group of writers that were a tremendous inspiration to me as a writer at a very formative time in my life. So I wanted to share that one with you, and I hope you enjoy it. It will include the introduction to the bookish podcast, and I'll put the link to that podcast in the show notes in case you want to check it out. I think there's some good stuff there, too. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Bookish, a literary podcast. I'm Paul, and in today's episode, we'll be time-traveling back to the glorious days of the 1980s with a little bit of a foray into the 90s as well now i understand that the 80s are not remembered as a literary decade and that's a shame because there's one particular subgroup of authors and novels that really needs to be remembered and read but before getting too far into the books I actually need to make a comment about a movie. The passage that I read at the beginning of this episode is the first page of Brett Easton Ellis' novel, Lesson Zero. For most of you, even the bookish ones, if you've heard of Lesson Zero at all, it's because of the Andrew McCarthy film from 1987. It was a decent film, and it featured an exceptional performance by a very young Robert Downey Jr., decades before he would become Iron Man. But except for the title and the names of the characters, it bears no resemblance to Less Than Zero. In fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that it has less than zero in common with Ellis's book. That out of the way, let's move on. It's a well-known fact that authors are, by nature and by vocation, solitary creatures. Paradoxically, though, if you think about it, maybe not surprisingly, some of the best writing, however, comes when authors interact with each other, at least socially. In fact, there are three key times in the 20th century and early 21st century where this is apparent. In 1912, going into the very early 1920s, the Bloomsbury Group in England consisted of Virginia Woolf, John Maynard Keynes, Ian Forster, Lytton Strachey, and Leonard Woolf. In the 1920s and 30s in Paris, the Lost Generation writers included John Despassos, Sherwood Anderson, Sylvia Beach, Gertrude Stein, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, DeJuna Barnes, and Ernest Hemingway. Yes, of course, I got a Hemingway reference in. And in the 2000s, Brooklyn has become the mecca of such noted authors as Paul Oster, Martin Amos, Jennifer Egan, Jonathan Safran Thor, Nicole Krauss. Colson Whitehead, and Zadie Smith. So what do any of those have to do with our episode today? Well, in the 1980s, there existed a really lost generation of authors that would come to be known as the Literary Brat Pack, many of whom went to Bennington College in Vermont at the same time and most of whom interacted with each other during the time that their first novels were coming out. This group includes some of the greatest authors of the last 30 years, many of whom are unknown today, at least to new readers. They include, as I mentioned before, Brett Easton Ellis, Donna Tart, Jonathan Latham, Jill Eisenstadt, Jay McInerney, Tamara Janowitz, and Mark Lindquist you may recognize some of the names especially Donna Tart, or you may not know any of them but when we come back we're going to talk a little more in depth about each one of them and about why that literary brat pack is so important stay tuned Delving into these fine authors and their even finer books, I realized that I probably need to clarify something that was said in the earlier segment. Because if there's one phrase that you've probably latched onto, it's literary brat pack. Quick history lesson for those of you who don't know, and many of you probably do. But in the 1960s, there was a group of entertainers that were called the Rat Pack. It included Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Sammy Davis Jr. In the early and mid 1980s, a number of films came out, most of them by John Hughes, that starred many of the same young actors, including Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, and a few others. And they were, in one magazine article, dubbed the Brat Pack. It was a terrible name and totally unfounded, but it stuck. Since the authors we're talking about today emerged at about the same time and were about the same age, they got tagged with the equally uninventive literary Brat Pack. So with that out of the way, let's move on. As I mentioned earlier, a number of these authors, though by no means all of them, attended Bennington College in Vermont in the early 1980s. I'm not going to go into a history of Bennington or really even much of what happened there. Rather, I'm going to point you to an excellent article in Esquire magazine that can also be read online called The Secret Oral History of Bennington, The 1980s Most Decadent College. If you want an easy way to find it, just follow me at www.facebook.com forward slash bookishpodcast because I posted a link to it there. It contains some great interviews or reminiscences, if you will, of the authors we're talking about today, uh, except really for Donna Tart, who apparently chose not to participate. Winning a Pulitzer will sometimes do that to you. Let's start with Brett Easton Ellis because I started with him with the section at the beginning of this episode. He wrote Lesson Zero when he was 21 years old. It came out in 1985 and was immediately recognized as something that we just hadn't heard before, hadn't read before, hadn't experienced before. There had just never been a quote-unquote coming-of-age novel, quite like it. Clay, the narrator, is ostensibly the main character. But in this book, there are no good guys and bad guys. Pretty much everyone is completely amoral. Now, that may be something that we're completely desensitized to today, especially with social media and the internet and everything else. But in 1985, books like that just didn't come out. His second novel, The Rules of Attraction, was also made into a very bad movie and followed some of the same themes, but this time at a fictionalized Bennington College. And he followed that up with by far his best known work, American Psycho. Everyone knows American Psycho, if only from the film, but let me assure you, as troubling as the cannibalism and such in that novel was, Lesson Zero is far scarier. I seriously want to warn you ahead of time. Some of it will trouble you deeply if you read it, but I believe it's worth reading. In preparing for this podcast, I wondered whether it's something that you can only read as a young person. I could have gone to college with pretty much 90% of the people on this list. They are all my contemporaries age-wise. And so I was reading it at about the same age or a little younger than he was when he wrote it. I have wondered if I picked it up today to read for the first time, what my reaction would be this many years later. I honestly don't know because when I reread it, which I do occasionally, it transports me back to 1985 and I believe it has one of the best opening lines ever written. People are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. I mean, at least as a teenager, that kind of line grabs you. Maybe it won't if you're 60. But if you're young, it definitely will. Ellis's writing and the writing of many of these authors has been compared to Raymond Carver and Joan Didion. But especially in Ellis's earlier work, stylistically at least, I see, big shock, Hemingway. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't have flowery prose. He lays it out there almost like a journalist. And the novel works even better because of that. The next author on this list, and one who did not go to Bennington, and is actually almost 10 years older than the rest of the group, is Jay McInerney. He's included because he was part of the group, because his first novel, Bright Lights, Big City, came out in 1984, one year before Ellis' first book. It was also made into a very bad movie starring Michael J. Fox, but the less about that the better. Bright Lights, Big City was unique, not because of the drug culture of Manhattan that it uh, portrayed because that had been known for some time going back into the 1970s, but McInerney did something that you rarely see in a novel and that rarely works in a novel, but it worked this time. He used the second person. And for whatever reason, saying you are not someone who is in a place like this at 3 a.m., I can't remember the exact quote, is just more powerful than writing, I am not a person. Who was in a place like this at 3 a.m. It takes a little bit of getting used to, but once you do, it flows, and it puts you in the story really well. I actually liked his novel, Story of My Life, which came out in 1988, even better than Bright Lights, Big City, but it didn't get a lot of play until it was revealed during the, I think 19 no 2000 election year that his main character the woman that he based the entire book on had had an affair and a child with democratic candidate john edwards that kind of brought the book back into notoriety for a while it's really good totally apart from that and you should read it in the mid 80s ellison mcinerney who tended to hang out in clubs together along with Jill Eisenstadt and Tammy Janowitz were the acknowledged stars of the group. That changed in 1992 however and that's why we're moving a little bit into the 90s as well. In 1992 Donna Tart released The Secret History and it became a massive bestseller. Tart was a classmate and friend of Ellis's. In fact, she dedicated The Secret History to him. It reads, For Brett Easton Ellis, whose generosity will never cease to warm my heart. This book was massive and is likely one of probably two that most of you have read. And it established her as the queen, for lack of a better word, of this group. Unlike most of the others, she also wasn't in a hurry to publish. The Secret History came out in 1992, followed by The Little Friend in 2002, and then the one that probably everyone knows in 2013, The Goldfinch, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Tart has something in common with Ellis in that in The Secret History, Although it was ostensibly a thriller, it was also set in a fictional Bennington and used a lot of the people that she knew from that time, including one particular professor, as characters. In fact, much like The Sun Also Rises, sometimes it's hard to tell where fact ends and fiction begins in both Tart and Ellis' early work. Another important member of the so-called literary Brat Pack was Tama Janowitz. She was also older than most of the others, although a little younger than McInerney, and she exploded on the scene in 1986 with her story collection, the slaves of New York. Now, again, if the slaves of New York was to come out today, it might not cause much stir, but it did in 1986 because it addressed sexual politics also in the setting of Manhattan in a way that had never been done before. And it's another book that can be troubling, at least the stories can be troubling, since it's not a novel, but it really laid the groundwork for everything that was to come afterward. She followed it up in 1988 with A Cannibal in Manhattan Which I have to admit I have not read, so I can't really comment on. Probably the least known core member of the literary brat pack is Jill Eisenstadt, who was a classmate of Ellis's and Tart's at Bennington, and she released *From Rockaway* in 1987. It's really a good book. It can be hard to find, but it's worth seeking it out. It. Talk some about the Bennington experience but it's set in her hometown of Rockaway New York Eisenstadt's only written three novels from Rockaway in 1989 Kiss Out in 1991 and Swell which came out in 2017 most of the other authors that I've mentioned have continued to write to the present day uh, especially Ellis who just released this year a book of essays called White, where he basically hammers millennials. He's taking a lot of heat for it on Twitter. Mark Lindquist is probably the least known of the group and only put out a handful of novels. I think he's written something recently, but I'm not sure, to be honest. He's from Southern California, like Ellis, did not go to Bennington, but his first book was Sad Movies, written in 1987, followed by Carnival Desires in 1990. Sad Movies is a very fast read, and it really does kind of put you in mind of Ellis, but more hopefully than Ellis ever was, or probably ever will be. It's worth a read as well. Finally, we have Jonathan Lethem. He's not part of the Literary brat Pack. He didn't actually graduate from Bennington, although he spent his senior year living in his girlfriend's dorm room there. And he actually began as an artist. But he really hit the scene after writing several novels with a few that really hit big, and he continues to be big today. His first novel was Gun, with occasional music in 1994 and he wrote several after that but it wasn't until motherless Brooklyn in 1999 that he became a literary star he followed that with fortress of solitude and chronic city which are titles that you probably recognize more than some of the other ones I've mentioned I include him because although he wasn't part of that mid-1980s scene, having gone back to California, he was influenced by it, very much so. In fact, all of these authors drew inspiration from each other, even from their rivalries with each other, some of which were more heated than others, and it impacted their work in a positive way. I think when you read groups of authors that wrote at the same time and come from roughly the same kind of educational background, regional area, whatever the case may be, you can sometimes get a better feel for a time and place than you can from something like a history book. Lesson Zero captures the early 80s better than any documentary could. And Story of My Life may have the best written female protagonist ever penned by a male author. I would definitely recommend those two in particular. So there is your trip down memory lane into the glorious 1980s. Almost all of these books can be found on Amazon but go to a used bookstore instead and search the shelves for them. You may not locate the one you're looking for But maybe you'll find something that you didn't realize you were looking for. And as we come to the end of this episode, for those of you who want to know, where's the co-host? We want more Sophie. Don't worry, she'll be back. Keep on reading. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Angry Typewriter. I hope it's been both informative and entertaining, especially for you writers out there. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I hope you'd also consider clicking on the support this podcast link on the Anchor site. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep these episodes coming. And it will also go a long way toward making this podcast completely ad-free. Thanks again.